Chapter 7 of Miss Cayley's Adventures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Barbara Edelman. Miss Cayley's Adventures. Chapter 7 The Adventure of the Unobtrusive Oasis. I will not attempt to describe to you the minor episodes of our next twelve months, the manuscripts we typewrote and the manitous we sold. Tis one of my aims, in a world so rich in bores, to avoid being tedious. I will merely say, therefore, that we spent the greater part of the year in Florence, where we were building up a connection, but rode back for the summer months to Switzerland, as being a livelier place for the trade in bicycles. The net result was not only that we covered our expenses, but that as Chancellor of the Exchequer I found myself with a surplus in hand at the end of the season. When we returned to Florence for the winter, however, I confess I began to chafe. "'This is slow work, Elsie,' I said. "'I started out to go round the world. It has taken me eighteen months to travel no farther than Italy.' At this rate, I shall reach New York a grey-haired old lady in a nice lace cap and totter back into London a venerable crone on the verge of ninety. However, those invaluable doctors came to my rescue unexpectedly. I do love doctors. They are always sending you off at a moment's notice to delightful places you never dreamt of. Elsie was better, but still far from strong. I took it upon myself to consult our medical attendant, and his verdict was decisive. He did just what a doctor ought to do. She is getting on very well in Florence, he said. But if you want to restore her health completely, I should advise you to take her for a winter to Egypt. After six months of the dry, warm desert air, I don't doubt she might return to her work in London. That last point I used as a lever with Elsie. She positively revels in teaching mathematics. At first, to be sure, she objected that we had only just money enough to pay our way to Cairo, and that when we got there we might starve, her favourite programme. I have not this extraordinary taste for starving. My idea is to go where you like and find something decent to eat when you get there. However... To humour her, I began to cast about me for a source of income. There is no absolute harm in seeing your way clear before you for a twelve-month, though, of course, it deprives you of the plot interest of poverty. Elsie, I said in my best didactic style, I excel in didactics, you do not learn from the lessons that life sets before you. Look at the stage, for example. The stage is universally acknowledged at the present day to be a great teacher of morals. Does not Irving say so? And he ought to know. There is that splendid model for imitation. For instance, the clown in the pantomime. How does the clown regulate his life? Does he take heed for the morrow? Not a bit of it. 
I wish I had a goose, he says at some critical juncture. And just as he says it, Pat, a super strolls upon the stage with a property goose on a wooden tray, and Clown cries, Oh, look here, Joey, here's a goose, and proceeds to appropriate it. Then he puts his fingers in his mouth and observes, I wish I had a few apples to make the sauce with. And as the words escape him, Pat again, a small boy with a very squeaky voice, runs on, carrying a basket of apples. Clown trips him up and bolts with the basket. There's a model for imitation. The stage sets these great moral lessons before you regularly every Christmas, yet you fail to profit by them. Govern your life on the principles exemplified by Clown. Expect to find that whatever you want will turn up with punctuality and dispatch at the proper moment. Be adventurous, and you will be happy. Take that as a new maxim to put in your copybook. I wish I could think so, dear, Elsie answered. But your confidence staggers me. That evening, at her table de haute, however, it was amply justified. A smooth-faced young man of ample girth and most prosperous exterior happened to sit next to us. He had his wife with him, so I judged it safe to launch on conversation. We soon found out that he was the millionaire editor-proprietor of a great London daily with many more strings to his journalistic bow. His honoured name was Elworthy. I mentioned casually that we thought of going for the winter to Egypt. He pricked his ears up. But at the time, he said nothing. After dinner, we adjourned to the cosy salon. I talked to him and his wife, and somehow, that evening, the devil entered into me. I am subject to devils. I hasten to add, they are mild ones. I had one of my reckless moods just then, however, and I reeled off rattling stories of our various adventures. Mr. Elworthy believed in youth and audacity. I could see I interested him. The more he was amused, the more reckless I became. That's bright, he said at last when I told him the tale of our amateur exploits in the sale of Manitou's. That would make a good article. Yes, I answered with bravado, determined to strike while the iron was hot. What the Daily Telegraph lacks is just one enlivening touch of feminine brightness. He smiled. What is your forte? he inquired. My forte, I answered, is to go where I choose and write what I like about it. He smiled again. And a very good new departure in journalism, too. A roving commission. Have you ever tried your hand at writing? Had I ever tried? It was the ambition of my life to see myself in print, though hitherto it had been ineffectual. I have written a few sketches, I answered, with becoming modesty. As a matter of fact, our office bulged with my unpublished manuscripts. Could you let me see them? he asked. I assented with inner joy, but outer reluctance. If you wish it, I murmured. But you must be very lenient. Though I had not told Elsie, the truth of the matter was, I had just then conceived an idea for a novel, my magnum opus. 
the setting of which compelled Egyptian local colour, and I was therefore dying to get to Egypt, if chance so willed it. I accordingly submitted a few of my picked manuscripts to Mr. Elworthy, in fear and trembling. He read them, cruel man, before my very eyes. I sat and waited, twiddling my thumbs, demure but apprehensive. When he had finished, he laid them down. Racy, he said, racy. You're quite right, Miss Cayley. That's just what we want on the Daily Telephone. I should like to print these three, selecting them out, at our usual rate of pay per thousand. You are very kind. But the room reeled with me. Not at all. I'm a man of business, and these are capital copy. Now, about this Egypt. I will put the matter in the shape of a business proposition. Will you undertake, if I pay your passage and your friends, with all travelling expenses, to let me have three descriptive articles a week on Cairo, the Nile, Syria, and India, running to about two thousand words apiece at three guineas a thousand? My breath came and went. It was positive opulence. The super with the goose couldn't approach it for patness. My editor had brought me the applesauce as well, without even giving me the trouble of cooking it. The very next day, everything was arranged. Elsie tried to protest on the foolish ground that she had no money, but the faculty had ordered the apex of her right lung to go to Egypt, and I couldn't let her fly in the face of the faculty. We secured our berths in a P&O steamer from Brindisi, and within a week we were tossing upon the bosom of the blue Mediterranean. People who haven't crossed the blue Mediterranean cherish an absurd idea that it is always calm and warm and sunny. I am sorry to take away any sea's character, but I speak of it as I find it, to borrow a phrase from my old jip at Girton, and I am bound to admit that the Mediterranean did not treat me as a lady expects to be treated. It behaved disgracefully. People may rhapsodize as long as they choose about a life on the ocean wave. For my own part, I wouldn't give a pin for seasickness. We glided down the Adriatic from Brindisi to Corfu with a reckless profusion of lateral motion which suggested the idea that the ship must have been drinking. I tried to rouse Elsie when we came abreast of the Ionian Islands and to remind her that here was the home of Nausicaa in the Odyssey. Elsie failed to respond. She was otherwise occupied. At last I succumbed and gave it up. I remember nothing further till a day and a half later, when we got under lee of Crete, and the ship showed a tendency to resume the perpendicular. Then I began once more to take a languid interest in the dinner question. I may add parenthetically that the Mediterranean is a mere bit of a sea, when you look at it on the map, a pocket sea to be regarded with mingled contempt and affection. But... You learn to respect it when you find that it takes four clear days and nights of abject misery merely to run across its eastern basin from Brindisi to Alexandria. I respected the Mediterranean immensely while we lay off the Peloponnesus in the trough of the waves with the north wind blowing. I only began to temper my respect with a distant liking when we passed under the welcome shelter of Crete on a calm, starlit evening.
It was deadly cold. We had not counted upon such weather in the sunny south. I recollect now that the Greeks were wont to represent Boreas as a chilly deity, and spoke of the Thracian breeze with the same deferentially deprecating adjectives which we ourselves apply to the east wind of our fatherland. But that apt classical memory somehow failed to console or warm me. A good-natured male passenger, however, volunteered to ask us, "'Will I get you a rug, ladies?' The form of his courteous question suggested the probability of his Irish origin. "'You are very kind,' I answered. "'If you don't want it for yourself, I'm sure my friend would be glad to have the use of it.' "'Tis it meself? Sure, I've got me big ulster, and I'm as warm as toast in it. But you're not provided for this weather. You have trusted too much to those rascals de ports. <laughs> Where breaks the blue Sicilian say, the rogue's right. I'd like to set them down in it with a nor'easter blowin'. He fetched up his rug. It was ample and soft, a smooth brown camel hair. He wrapped us both up in it. We sat late on deck that night, as warm as toast ourselves, thanks to our genial Irishman. We asked his name. "'Tis Dr. McLaughlin,' he answered. I'm from County Clare, you see, and I'm on me way to Egypt for travel and exploration. My father wished me to see the world a bit before I'd settled down to practice me profession at Liscanor. Have you ever been in County Clare? Sure, tis the pick of Ireland. We have that pleasure still in store, I answered, smiling. It spreads gold leaf over the future, as George Meredith puts it. Tis it Meredith? Ah, oh, there's the fine writer. Tis genius the man has. I can't understand a word of him, but he's half Irish, you know. What proof have I got of it? And would he write like that if it wasn't a drop of the blood of the Celt in him? Next day and next night, Dr. McLaughlin was our devoted slave. I had won his heart by admitting frankly that his countrywomen had the finest and liveliest eyes in Europe. "'eyes with a deep twinkle, half fun, half passion. "'He took to us at once and talked to us incessantly. "'He was a red-haired, raw-boned monster man, but a real good fellow. "'We forgot the aggressive inequalities of the Mediterranean "'while he talked to us of the peasantry. "'Late the second evening, he propounded a confidence. "'It was a lovely night.' Orion overhead and the plashing phosphorescence on the water below conspired with the hour to make him specially confidential. Now, Miss Cayley, he said, leaning forward on his deck chair and gazing earnestly into my eyes, there's one question I'd like to ask ye. The ambition of me life is to go into Parliament, and I want to know from ye, as a friend, if I accomplish me heart's wish, is there anything in me appearance, or in me voice, or in me accent, or in me manner, that would lead anybody to suppose I was an Irishman? I succeeded, by good luck, in avoiding Elsie's eye. What on earth could I answer? Then a happy thought struck me. Dr. McLaughlin, I said, it would not be the slightest use your trying to conceal it, for even if nobody ever detected a 
faint irish intonation in your words or phrases how could your eloquence fail to betray you for a countryman of sheridan and burke and grattan he seized my hand with such warmth that i thought it best to hurry down to my stateroom at once under cover of my compliment at alexandria and cairo we found him invaluable he looked after our luggage which he gallantly rescued from the lean hands of fifteen arab porters all eagerly struggling to gain possession of our effects he saw us safe into the train and he never quitted us till he had safely ensconced us in our rooms at shepherd's for himself he said with subdued melancholy twas to some cheaper hotel he must go shepherd's wasn't for the likes of him though if land in a county clare was worth what it ought to be there wasn't a finer estate in all ireland than his father's our mr elworthy was a modern proprietor who knew how to do things on the lordly scale having commissioned me to write this series of articles he intended them to be written in the first style of art and he had instructed me accordingly to hire one of cook's little steam dahabias where i could work at leisure dr mclaughlin was in his element arranging for the trip sure and the only thing i mind he said is that i'll not be going with you i think he was half inclined to invite himself but there again i draw the line i will not sell salt fish and i will not go up the nile unchaperoned with a casual man acquaintance he did the next best thing however he took a place in a sailing dahabia and as we steamed up slowly stopping often on the way to give me time to write my articles he managed to arrive almost always at every town or ruin exactly when we did i will not describe the voyage the nile is the nile just at first before we got used to it we conscientiously looked up the name of every village we passed on the bank in our murray and our baedeker after a couple of days niling however we found that formality quite unnecessary they were all the same village under a number of aliases they did not even take the trouble to disguise themselves anew like dr fortescue langley on each fresh appearance they had every one of them a small whitewashed mosque with a couple of tall minarets and around it spread a number of mud-built cottages looking more like beehives than human habitations they had also every one of them a group of date palms overhanging a cluster of mean bare houses and they all alike had a picturesque and even imposing air from a distance but faded away into indescribable squalor as one got abreast of them our progress was monotonous at twelve noon we would pass abu teague with its mosque its palms its mud huts and its camels then for a couple of hours we would go on through the midst of a green field on either side studded by more mud huts and backed up by a range of grey desert mountains only to come at two p m twenty miles higher up upon abu teague once more with the same mosque the same mud huts and the same haughty camels placidly chewing the same aristocratic cud but under the alias of kus 
After a wild hubbub at the quay, we would leave Cuscombe behind, with its camels still serenely munching day before yesterday's dinner, and twenty miles farther on again, having passed through the same green plain, backed by the same grey mountains, we would stop once more at the identical Cuscombe, which this time absurdly described itself as Tata. But whether it was Abutig, or Cuscombe, or Tata, or anything else, only the name differed. It was always the same town, and had always the same camels at precisely the same stage of the digestive process. It seemed to us immaterial whether you saw all the Nile or only five miles of it. It was just like wallpaper. A sample sufficed. The whole was the sample infinitely repeated. However, I had my letters to write, and I wrote them valiantly. I described the various episodes of the complicated digestive process in the camel in the most minute detail. I gloated over the date palms, which I knew in three days as if I had been brought up upon dates. I gave word pictures of every individual child, veiled woman, Arab sheik, and Coptic priest whom we encountered on the voyage and I am open to reprint those conscientious studies of mud-huts and minarets with any enterprising publisher who will make me an offer. Another disillusionment weighed upon my soul. Before I went up the Nile, I had a fancy of my own that the bank was studded with endless ruined temples, whose vast red colonnades were reflected in the water at every turn. I think Macaulay's lays were primarily answerable for that particular misapprehension. As a matter of fact, it surprised me to find that we often went for two whole days hard steaming, without ever a temple breaking the monotony of those eternal date palms, those calm and superciliously irresponsive camels. In my humble opinion, Egypt is a fraud. There is too much Nile. Very dirty Nile at that, and not nearly enough temple. Besides, the temple, when you do come upon one, is just like the villages. They are the same temples over and over again, under a different name each time, and they have the same gods, the same kings, the same wearisome bas-reliefs, except that the gentleman in a chariot ten feet high, who is mowing down enemies a quarter his own size, with unsportsmanlike recklessness, is called Ramses in this place, and Seti in that, and Amenhotep in the other. With this trifling variation, when you have seen one temple, one obelisk, one hieroglyphic table, you have seen the whole of ancient Egypt. At last, after many days' voyage through the same scenery daily, rising in the morning off a village with a mosque, ten palms and two minarets, and retiring late at night off the same village once more with mosque, palms and minarets as before, we arrived one evening at a place called Girga. In itself, I believe Girga did not differ materially from all the other places we had passed on our voyage. It had its mosque, its ten palms, and its two minarets as usual. But I remember its name, because something mysterious went wrong here with our machinery, and the engineer informed us we must wait at least three days to mend it. 
Dr. McLaughlin's dahabeah happened opportunely to arrive at the same spot on the same day, and he declared with fervor that he would see us through our troubles. But what on earth were we to do with ourselves through three long days and nights at Girga? There were the ruins of Abedos close at hand, to be sure, though I defy anybody not a professed Egyptologist to give more than one day to the ruins of Abedos. In this emergency, Dr. McLaughlin came gallantly to our aid. He discovered, by inquiring from an English-speaking guide, that there was an unobtrusive oasis, never visited by Europeans, one long day's journey off across the desert. As a rule, it takes at least three days to get camels and guides together for such an expedition, for Egypt is not a land to hurry in. But the indefatigable doctor further unearthed the fact that a sheik had just come in, who, for a consideration, would lend us camels for a two-day's trip, and we seized the chance to do our duty by Mr. Elworthy and the worldwide circulation. An unvisited oasis, and two Christian ladies to be the first to explore it. There's a journalistic enterprise for you. If we happen to be killed, so much the better for the daily telephone. I pictured the excitement at Piccadilly Circus. Extra special, our own correspondent brutally murdered. I rejoiced at the opportunity. I cannot honestly say that Elsie rejoiced with me. She cherished a prejudice against camels, massacres, and the new journalism. She didn't like being murdered, though this was premature, for she had never tried it. She objected that the fanatical Mohammedans of the Sanusi sect, who were said to inhabit the oasis in question, might cut our throats for dogs of infidels. I pointed out to her at some length that it was just that chance which added zest to our expedition as a journalistic venture. Fancy the glory of being the first lady journalist martyred in the cause. But she failed to grasp this aspect of the question. However... If I went, she would go too, she said, like the dear girl that she is. She would not desert me when I was getting my throat cut. Dr. McLaughlin made the bargain for us and insisted on accompanying us across the desert. He told us his method of negotiations with the Arabs with extreme gusto. Is it pay in advance you want, says oi to the dirty beggars? Divil a penny will you get till you bring these ladies safe back to Girga? And remember, Mr. Sheik says, I finger in me pistol so by way of emphasis. We take no money with us, so if your friends at Wadi Boo choose to cut our throats, tis for the pleasure of it they'll be cutting them, not for anything they'll be gaining by it. Provisions offendy, said he, salaaming. Provisions, is it, said I. Take everything you'll want with you. I suppose you can buy food fit for a Christian in the bazaar at Girga, and never one penny do you touch for at all till you've landed us on the bank again, safe as you took us. So, if the religious sentiments of the faithful at Wadi Boo should lay them to hack us to pieces, says I, just waving me revolver, then tis yourself that will be out of pocket by it. And the old devil cringed as if he took me for the Prince of Wales. Faith, "'Tis the purse that's the best argument to catch these heathen Arabs upon.' "'When we set out for the desert in the early dawn next day, "'it looked as if we were starting for a few months' voyage. 
we had a company of camels that might have befitted a caravan. We had two large tents, one for ourselves and one for Dr. McLaughlin, with a third to dine in. We had bedding and cushions and drinking water, tied up in swollen pigskins, which were really goat skins, looking far from tempting. We had bread and meat and a supply of presents to soften the hearts and weaken the religious scruples of the sheiks at Wadi Bou. We travel on Prince, said the doctor. When all was ready, we got under way solemnly, our camels rising and sniffing the breeze with a superior air, as who should say, oh, I happen to be going where you happen to be going, but don't for a moment suppose I do it to please you. "'Tis mere coincidence. "'You are bound for Wadibu. "'I have business of my own "'which chances to take me there.' "'Over the incidents of the journey "'I draw a veil. "'Riding a camel, I find, "'does not greatly differ from seasickness. "'They are the same phenomenon "'under altered circumstances. "'We had been assured beforehand on excellent authority that much of the comfort on a desert journey depends upon having a good camel. On this matter I am no authority. I do not set up as a judge of camel flesh, but I did not notice any of the comfort, so I venture to believe my camel must have been an exceptionally bad one. We expected trouble from the fanatical natives. I am bound to admit we had most trouble with Elsie. She was not insubordinate, but she did not care for camel riding, and her beast took advantage of her youth and innocence. A well-behaved camel should go almost as fast as a child can walk, and should not sit down plump on the burning sand without due reason. Elsie's brute crawled and called halts for prayer at frequent intervals. It tried to kneel like a good Muslim many times a day, and it showed an intolerant disposition to crush the infidel by rolling over on top of Elsie. Dr. McLaughlin admonished it with Irish eloquence, not always in language intended for publication, but it only turned up its supercilious lip and inquired in its own unspoken tongue what Dr. McLaughlin knew about the desert. "'I feel like a worm before the baste,' the doctor said, nonplussed. "'If the Nile was monotonous, the road to Wadi Bou was nothing short of dreary. "'We crossed a great ridge of bare grey rock "'and followed a rolling valley of sand scored by dry ravines and baking in the sun. "'It was ghastly to look upon. "'All day long, save at the midday rest by some brackish wells, we rode on and on, the brute stepping forward with slow, outstretched legs, though sometimes we walked by the camel's sides to vary the monotony, but ever through that dreary upland plain, sand in the centre, rocky mountain at the edge, and not a thing to look upon. We were relieved towards evening to stumble against stunted tamarisks, half buried in the sand, and to feel that we were approaching the edge of the oasis. When at last our arrogant beasts condescended to stop in their patronizing way, we saw by the dim light of the moon a sort of uneven basin or hollow, studded with date-palms, and in the midst of the depression a crumbling walled town, with a whitewashed mosque, two minarets by its side, 
and a crowd of mud houses. It was strangely familiar. We had come all this way just to see Abu Tigre Kuskam over again. We camped outside the fortified town that night. Next morning we essayed to make our entry. At first the servants of the Prophet on watch at the gate raised serious objections. No infidel might enter. But we had a pass from Cairo exhorting the faithful in the name of the Khedive to give us food and shelter, and after much examination and many loud discussions, the gatemen passed us. We entered the town and stood alone, three Christian Europeans in the midst of three thousand fanatical Mohammedans. I confess it was weird. Elsie shrank by my side. Suppose they were to attack us, Brownie? Then the sheik here would never get paid, Dr. McLaughlin put in with true Irish recklessness. Faith, he'll whistle for his money on the whistle I gave him. That touch of humour saved us. We laughed, and the people about saw we could laugh. They left off scowling and pressed round, trying to sell us pottery and native brooches. In the intervals of fanaticism, the Arab has an eye to business. We passed up the chief street of the bazaar. The inhabitants told us in pantomime the chief of the town was away at Asyut, whither he had gone two days ago on business. If he were here, our interpreter gave us to understand, things might have been different, for the chief had determined that whomever came, no infidel dog should settle in his oasis. The women with their veiled faces attracted us strangely. They were wilder than on the river. They ran when one looked at them. Suddenly... As we passed one, we saw her give a little start. She was veiled like the rest, but her agitation was evident through her thick covering. She is afraid of Christians, Elsie cried, nestling towards me. The woman passed close to us. She never looked in our direction, but in a very low voice she murmured as she passed, Then you are English. I had presence of mind enough to conceal my surprise at this unexpected utterance. Don't seem to notice her, Elsie, I said, looking away. Yes, we are English. She stopped and pretended to examine some jewellery on a stall. So am I, she went on in the same suppressed, low voice. For heaven's sakes, help me. What are you doing here? I live here, married. I was with Gordon's force at Khartoum. They carried me off, a mere girl then. Now I am thirty. And you have been here ever since? She turned away and walked off, but kept whispering behind her veil. We followed unobtrusively. Yes, I was sold to a man at Dongola. He passed me on again to the chief of this oasis. I don't know where it is. But I have been here ever since. I hate this life. Is there any chance of a rescue? Any chance of a rescue, is it? The doctor broke in, a trifle too ostensibly. If it costs us a whole British army, me dear lady, we'll fetch you away and save you. But now, today, you won't go away and leave me. You are the first Europeans I have seen since Khartoum fell. They may sell me again. You will not desert me. No, I said, we will not. Then I reflected for a moment. What on earth could we do? This was a painful dilemma. 
If we once lost sight of her, we might not see her again. Yet, if we walked with her openly and talked like friends, we would betray ourselves and her to these fanatical Sanusis. I made up my mind promptly. I may not have much of a mind, but such as it is, I flatter myself I can make it up at a moment's notice. "'Can you come to us outside the gate at sunset?' I asked, as if I was speaking to Elsie. The woman hesitated. "'I think so.' "'Then keep us in sight all day, and when evening comes, stroll out behind us.' She turned over some embroidered slippers on a booth and seemed to be inspecting them. "'But, my children,' she murmured anxiously. The doctor interposed. "'Is it children he has?' he asked. "'Then they'll be the Mohammedan gentlemen's. "'We mustn't interfere with them. "'We can take away the lady. "'She's English and detained against her will. "'But we can't deprive any man of his own children.' "'I was firm and categorical.' "'Yes, we can,' I said stoutly. "'If he has forced a woman to bear them to him whether she would or not, "'that's common justice. "'I have no respect for the Mohammedan gentleman's rights. "'Let her bring them with her. "'How many are there?' Two, a boy and a girl. "'Not very old. The eldest is seven. "'She spoke wistfully. "'A mother is a mother.' "'Then say no more now.' But keep us always in sight, and we will keep you. Come to us at the gate about sundown. We shall carry you off with us. She clasped her hands and moved off with the peculiar gliding air of the veiled Mohammedan woman. Our eyes followed her. We walked on through the bazaar, thinking of nothing else now. It was strange how this episode made us forget our selfish fears for our own safety. Even dear, timid Elsie remembered only that an Englishwoman's life and liberty were at stake. We kept her more or less in view all day. She glided in and out among the people in the alleys. When we went back to the camels at lunchtime, she followed us unobtrusively through the open gate and sat watching us from a little way off among a crowd of gazers, for all Wadi Bu was of course agog at this unwanted invasion. We discussed the circumstances loudly so that she might hear our plans. Dr. McLaughlin advised that we should tell our sheik we meant to return part of the way to Girga that evening by moonlight. I quite agreed with him. It was the only way out. Besides, I didn't like the looks of the people. They eyed us askance. This was getting exciting now. I felt a professional journalistic interest. Whether we escaped or got killed, what splendid business for the daily telephone. The sheik, of course, declared it was impossible to start that evening. The men wouldn't move, the camels needed rest, but Dr. McLaughlin was inexorable. Very well then, Mr. Sheik, he answered philosophically. You'll plays yourself about whether you come on with us or whether you stop. That's your own business. But we set out at sundown, and when you return by yourself on foot to Girga, you can ask for your camels at the British consulate. All through that anxious afternoon, we sat in our tents under the shade of the mud wall, wondering whether we could carry out our plan or not. About an hour before sunset, the veiled woman strolled out of the gate with her two children. She joined the crowd of sightseers once more, for never through the day were we left alone for a second. 
the excitement grew intense elsie and i moved up carelessly towards the group talking as if to one another i looked hard at elsie then i said as though i were speaking about one of the children go straight along the road to girga till you are past the big clump of palms at the edge of the oasis just beyond it comes a sharp ridge of rock wait behind the ridge where no one can see you when we get there i patted the little girl's head don't say a word but jump on my camel my two friends will take each one of the children if you understand and consent stroke your boy's curls we will accept that for a signal she stroked the child's head at once without the least hesitation even through her veil and behind her dress i could somehow feel and see her trembling nerves her beating heart but she gave no overt token she merely turned and muttered something carelessly in arabic to a woman beside her we waited once more in long-drawn suspense would she manage to escape them would they suspect her motives after ten minutes when we had returned to a crouching place under the shadow of the wall the woman detached herself slowly from the group and began strolling with almost overdone nonchalance along the road to girga we could see the little girl was frightened and seemed to expostulate with her mother fortunately the arabs about were much too occupied in watching the suspicious strangers to notice this episode of their own people presently our new friend disappeared and with beating hearts we awaited the sunset then came the usual scene of hubbub with the sheik the camels the porters and the drivers it was eagerness against apathy with difficulty we made them understand we meant to get under way at all hazards i stormed in bad arabic the doctor invade in very choice irish at last they yielded and set out one by one our camels rose bent their slow knees and began to stalk in their lordly way with outstretched necks along the road to the river we moved through the palm groves a crowd of boys following us and shouting for bakshish we began to be afraid they would accompany us too far and discover our fugitive but fortunately they all turned back with one accord at a little whitewashed shrine near the edge of the oasis we reached the clump of palms we turned the corner of the ridge had we missed one another no there crouching by the rocks with her children by her side sat our mysterious stranger the doctor was equal to the emergency make those beasts kneel he cried authoritatively to the sheik the sheik was taken aback this was a new exploit burst upon him he flung his arms up gesticulating wildly the doctor unmoved made the drivers understand by some strange pantomime what he wanted they nodded half terrified in a second the stranger was by my side elsie had taken the girl the doctor the boy and the camels were passively beginning to rise again that is the best of your camel once set him on his road and he goes mechanically the sheik broke out with several loud remarks in arabic which we did not understand but whose hostile character could not easily escape us he was beside himself with anger then i was suddenly aware of the splendid advantage of having an irishman on our side dr mclaughlin drew his revolver like one well used to such episodes and pointed it full at the angry arab 
Look here, Mr. Sheik, he said calmly, yet with a fine touch of bravado. Do you see this revolver? Well, unless you make your camels travel straight to Girga without one other word, tis your own brains'll be spattered, sir, on the sand of this desert. And if you touch one hair of our heads, you'll answer for it with your life to the British government. I do not feel sure that the sheik comprehended the exact nature of each word in this comprehensive threat, but I am certain he took in its general meaning, punctuated as it was with some flourishes of the revolver. He turned to the drivers and made a gesture of despair. It meant, apparently, that this infidel was too much for him. Then he called out a few sharp directions in Arabic. Next minute, our camel's legs were stepping out briskly along the road to Girga with a promptitude which I'm sure must have astonished their owners. We rode on and on through the gloom in a fever of suspense. Had any of the Senussis noticed our presence? Would they miss the chief's wife before long and follow us under arms? Would our own sheik betray us? I am no coward as women go, but I confess, if it had not been for our fiery Irishman, I should have felt my heart sink. We were grateful to him for the reckless and good-humoured courage of the untamed kilt. It kept us from giving way. "'You'll take notice, Mr. Sheik,' he said, as we threaded our way among the moonlit rocks, that I have twenty-one cartridges in me case for me revolver, and if there's trouble tonight, tis twenty of em they'll be for your friends the Senussis and one for yourself. But for fear of disappointing a gentleman, tis your own special bullet I'll distribute first if it comes to fightin'. The sheik's English was a vanishing quantity, but to judge by the way he nodded and salaamed at this playful remark, I am convinced he understood the doctor's Irish quite as well as I did. We spoke little, by the way. We were all far too frightened, except the doctor, who kept our hearts up by a running fire of wild Celtic humour. But I found time, meanwhile, to learn by a few questions from our veiled friend something of her captivity. She had seen her father massacred before her eyes at Khartoum, and had then been sold away to a merchant, who conveyed her by degrees and by various exchanges across the desert through lonely spots to the Senussi oasis. There she had lived all those years with the chief to whom her last purchaser had trafficked her. She did not even know that her husband's village was an integral part of the Khedive territory, far less than that the English were now in practical occupation of Egypt. She had heard nothing and learnt nothing since that fateful day. She had waited in vain for the off chance of a deliverer. "'But did you never try to run away to the Nile?' I cried, astonished. "'Run away? How could I? I did not even know which way the river lay, and was it possible for me to cross the desert on foot or find the chance of a camel?' The Senussis would have killed me. Even with you to help me, see what dangers surround me. Alone I should have perished, like Hagar in the wilderness, with no angel to save me. And you've got the angel now, Dr. McLaughlin exclaimed, glancing at me. Steady there, Mr. Sheik. What's this that's coming? It was another caravan, going the opposite way, on its road to the oasis. A voice hallowed from it. Our new friend clung tightly to me. My husband, 
she whispered, gasping. They were still far off on the desert, and the moon shone bright. A few hurried words to the doctor, and with a wild resolve we faced the emergency. He made the camels halt, and all of us, springing off, crouched down behind their shadows in such a way that the coming caravan must pass on the far side of us. At the same moment, the doctor turned resolutely to the sheik. Look here, Mr. Arab, he said in a quiet voice with one more appeal to the simple volapuk of the pointed revolver. I cover you with this. Let these frenziers go by. If there's any unnecessary talking twixt you, or any trouble of any kind, remember, the first bullet goes straight as an arrow through that heathen head of yours. The sheik salaamed more submissively than ever. The caravan drew abreast of us. We could hear them cry aloud on either side the customary salutes. In Allah's name, peace, answered by, Allah is great, there is no God but Allah. Would anything more happen? Would our sheik play us false? It was a moment of breathlessness. We crouched and cowered in the shade, holding our hearts with fear, while the Arab drivers pretended to be unsaddling the camels. A minute or two of anxious suspense. Then, peering over our beasts' backs, we saw their long line filing off towards the oasis. We watched their turbaned heads, silhouetted against the sky, disappearing slowly. One by one, they faded away. The danger was past. With beating hearts, we rose up again. The doctor sprang into his place and seated himself on his camel. Now ride on, Mr. Sheik, he said, with all your men, as if grim death were after you. Camels or no camels, you've got to march all night, for you'll never draw rain till we're safe back at Girga. And sure enough, we never halted under the persuasive influence of that loaded revolver till we dismounted once more in the early dawn upon the Nile bank under British protection. Then Elsie and I and our rescued countrywoman broke down together in an orgy of relief. We hugged one another and cried like so many children. End of chapter 7 Miss Cayley's Adventures The Unobtrusive Oasis Recording by Barbara Edelman Los Angeles, California For more information, please go to barbaraedelmanvoice.com